Uh, so this image went viral on Twitter this week. And as usual, Twitter shows me things that I hate. It seems like just to make me really angry. I don't know if that's everybody or just me. I'm like, I don't follow this guy. Why am I seeing this? It's a picture of Zeus and Jesus. And uh, within a day, over half a million people had seen this post and people were sharing it and resharing it and commenting on it and disliking it and liking it. This is what the caption said. Real gods like Zeus are forms of the good, strength, power, beauty, health, and virtue. Fake gods like Jesus are forms of the bad, weakness, powerlessness, humiliation, ugliness, emaciation. Which gods we worship determines what we manifest. Manifest the good, manifest Zeus. And I think, as ridiculous as this post is, I think it actually shows us sometimes what some of the unstated prevailing ideas in our culture are. Being strong is good, being weak is bad. And I think this is very much how people thought in first century Rome, where toxic masculinity was essentially deified. That's what the gods were. Um, around 200 AD, there was this graffiti, this famous graffiti called the uh, Alexamanos Graffitico. Uh, it's considered one of the earliest art depictions of Jesus. And they discovered it in modern times where they were removing a wall in Rome behind it was an old plaster wall, they think from around 200 AD, and someone had carved into the plaster wall this depiction. And then this person over here is supposed to be uh, Alexa Manos, who's apparently a worshiper, and it says, Alexa Manos worships his god. And it was a way, apparently, to mock this guy and make fun of him for worshiping a ridiculous god like Jesus. To the Romans, Jesus seemed like a donkey-headed fool, and anyone who worshipped him was worthy of ridicule. It was foolish to consider worshipping a god so naive that he would allow himself to die for other people. And the kingdom, even though we're 2,000 years later, the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus' teachings, his way of life, still feels upside down to us. It, compared to our Western culture and the way we think, it's still upside down. However... What's different is our culture has been influenced by Christian values, even if in all honesty we're chasing the kingdom without the king. We're in a very different place than the Christians were in the first and, centuries, first and second century. There are very few people going around today saying Zeus is better than Jesus, um, besides some alt-right neo-Nazi trolls like the guy who posted that tweet at the beginning. Instead, we have a different problem in our culture, though. See, our culture actually embraces a lot of the teachings of Jesus. We care about justice for the marginalized. No good Roman cared about the marginalized. You were powerful, you were important. You were marginalized, you didn't matter. You know, our culture actually embraces some of the teachings of Jesus. We want the outcast to be protected and have a voice in society. The Romans did not want that. They're like, if you're an outcast, you're outcast for a reason. You can die, I don't care about you. These are uniquely Jesus ideas that have infiltrated our culture. And if you chase them back through world history, you'll see that they come from Jesus. Um, we're in a very different place than the first century, but what is still challenging for our culture today is we want some of the values of the kingdom of Jesus, but we want the kingdom, like I said, without the king. We think we can bring about these good things through economics or education or politics, and all those things are good and good avenues that we should pursue, but they can't ultimately solve our biggest problem. We fail to recognize that we have a desperate need for King Jesus, for these things to be realized in us, 
and around us. We need to become upside-down kingdom people if we want to see the values of the upside-down kingdom of Jesus to take work in us. And to become upside-down kingdom people, we need Jesus to do a supernatural work in us. Education won't be enough. Economics won't be enough. Politics won't be enough. enough. Something supernatural needs to happen in us. We need Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension to transform us into upside-down kingdom people. Now, remember, we're using this upside-down kingdom language in this series to convey the way the kingdom of God challenges the prevailing social order, how the values of the kingdom stand in inverse relation to many of the values in our culture. And over the last four weeks, we've explored this concept of the upside-down values of Jesus' kingdom. We've talked about it in a very analytical and abstract way. That's the way my brain works. Almost everything I say is in an analytical, abstract way. And I really like that because that keeps everything at a safe distance. I can learn about it. I can amass a lot of information. I can have an opinion about it, and I never have to do anything with it, right? Like I can get all this information, and I can say, wow, I'm so smart. I know a lot more, and I can move on. But today we're going to get really practical. We're going to talk about what it looks like to live as upside-down citizens of Jesus' upside-down kingdom. What it looks like to live on a Monday, on a Wednesday, on a Thursday afternoon as a follower of Jesus, not a follower of Zeus. And there are several places we could turn to in the Bible to get an idea about this. Um, Jesus, in Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, she's a little future preacher right there. She's, she's ready to go. Um, Matthew 5 through 7, 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is essentially where Jesus outlines, like, this is what it looks like to be my disciple, to live in my kingdom. But today I want to turn to Romans chapter 12. The letter to the Romans is written to the house churches in Rome in the first century. And historically, there's some things happening there that we need to talk about before we read the passage in order to understand and interpret the text correctly. Originally, in the house churches in Rome, the Jews were the teachers and the leaders in the Roman house churches. There were Gentiles there, but the Jews were the leaders because they knew the Old Testament. They could talk about how Jesus the Messiah was the prophesied mediator between heaven and earth. However, before this letter was written, somewhere around 55 AD, Claudius Caesar, we have, there's still statues of him. I think we have a picture of one. Yep, there he is. Claudius Caesar expelled all the Jews from Rome somewhere around AD 50. And so the house churches that had been a mix of Jew and Gentile in the beginning became Gentile only. Now the Jews were allowed back into Rome a few years later, but many of them had lost their businesses and their property. They were poor or destitute. And now Gentile believers were the leaders in the house churches. So it had been Jew and Gentile, Jews kind of in charge. The Jews had all been kicked out. The Gentiles took over. So they returned to find the house churches devoid of all the Jewish influences they favored. They found themselves as second-class citizens, stripped of their position as authorities. And then Paul writes them this letter to remind the Gentile and Jewish believers how they should behave with each other and how they should behave in their culture. This is in Rome, the heart of the pagan empire, and he's writing to them this letter. Often when Romans is quoted, it's almost always interpreted in light of the Reformation. All the reformers love to quote passages from from Romans. But to understand it, you have to see it as about Jews and Gentiles, about the rich and the poor, the social outcasts and the social insiders. And thinking like the broken systems of the world or thinking like the coming kingdom of Jesus. Okay, so that's all the background on Romans. Let's jump in. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. This is what Paul writes to them. 
He's given them a whole letter telling them to get along and work together and not be influenced by the Roman culture, but to stand apart. And then he says in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Um, worship is more than, you know, three chords and uh, a verse that we repeat over and over again in a worship song, right? Worship is living as if our bodies belong to God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to detest and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Notice what he said there in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by a new way of thinking. We either conform or we are transformed. We're either being conformed or we're being transformed. Those are the two options. We either think about winning like the culture does, or we think about winning like Jesus does. We either see Jesus on the cross and we think weakness, or we see it and we think strength. Um, one of my friends on Twitter, after he saw that post that I showed earlier, he said, I think it says a lot more that Jesus sides with the victim than the victor, and like he, he beautifully like tore apart the, uh, the whole guy's argument. Um, but we either look at Jesus on the cross and we think, man, this is a display of weakness, or we look at it and we see this is strength. We either conform to the culture or we're transformed by Jesus's upside-down vision of the kingdom. And the letter to the Romans confronts both the Gentile believer's obsession with status and wealth, and also the Jewish believer's obsession with tradition and religious rituals. Both were conforming to the way the world thinks and works. Both wanted to be in charge. Both saw winning as being the ones in control of the Roman house churches. And Paul tells them, you have missed the transformational reality of Jesus' kingdom, that Jesus conquered death and sin and the devil by acting like a sacrifice, not a conqueror. And we've all had these abstract messages about the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom over the last few weeks, and it's easy to listen to those abstract messages and go, yeah, 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 I believe that. Like Al's message last week and Sam's message and a couple of my messages and be like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I believe those things. But when it gets really practical, what I find is sometimes the things I say I believe, I'm not actually living out. You know, I, I could say, like, I love broccoli. But if I never eat it, if every time I'm offered it, I throw it away, then I don't really love broccoli, right? Uh, that happens a lot of times when I preach a message and I teach on it and I say, yeah, 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 I believe this. This thing is true. I wholeheartedly believe it. And then I don't live it out in my life. I don't really believe it. I think it's a good idea, but I don't think it's truth. When it gets practical, it reveals that many times we are conforming much more than we are being transformed. And I think as we read these next few verses, we'll realize we think this is a good idea, but many times we haven't embraced it. Paul gives the Roman believers and us, 2,000 years later, some practical exercises, both to develop our transformation, to grow our strength in being renewed in this new way of thinking about Jesus' kingdom, um, and some practical exercises to evaluate our level of conformity to the way the world defines winning. There's this tendency in human nature to always assume we're a little better than we actually are. And I think when it comes to conforming or being transformed, I think all of us think, yeah, I'm a little bit more in Jesus's camp than I am in culture's camp. And I think we're probably a little bit more in culture's camp than we even realize. 
So Paul's going to give us these list of things, these things that we should be seeing in our life if we believe that the coming kingdom of Jesus is a real reality that's dismantling the kingdom that is. These next few verses, though, are going to be challenging, but they shouldn't make us feel guilty. Um, Instead, they should make us aware that often we're not as far along as we'd like to think in our apprenticeship to how Jesus lived and loved. Jesus is always happy to meet us where we are, but Jesus will only meet you where you are, not where you think you are or where you want to be or where you pretend to be. So deep breaths. Let's work through these a few at a time. Paul is writing to these believers who have been at each other's throats in the most pagan city in the empire, verses 9 through uh, 13. We'll take them a few at a time. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serve the Lord, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, be faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Okay, that first section isn't too bad. There's not too many challenging things there. Love without hypocrisy, or as some translations might say, sincere love, is acting on love, not simply saying you love. It's really easy to say you love. It's much harder to show that you love. Christians are really good at saying they love their neighbors, but they're really bad at actually showing love to their neighbors. We're good at saying we love people far from God, but we're bad at going to reach people far from God and showing them love where they are. We're bad at sacrificing what we prefer in order to reach people far from God. I remember sitting in a church meeting in Tennessee and we were talking about some changes to very simple things about the church. I mean, like the way we did some things because it would be good for people who are far away from God to come in and experience church. My preaching is already making her cry. Took one Sunday. (laughs) So I remember I was in this meeting and we were talking about making some really simple changes to our church structure, just so people who weren't used to church, who weren't used to Christianity, could come in and have an easier transition into the service and into the community. And I remember there were people who had been in the church their entire life whose family had founded the church we were at in Tennessee, and they were like, no, we've always done it this way, and we always will do it this way. And I was like, don't you want to reach people far away from God? Don't you want them to be welcome? They said, yes, absolutely, as long as they come in and do it our way. And I was like, you love them, but not enough to actually change. We say we love people, but we're bad at sacrificing what we prefer in order to reach people far from God. We're good at saying we love people like Jesus loved people, but often we're disgusted by people's sin so much that all they feel from us is hate. Notice what Paul says next there after sincere love. Detest what is evil, not who is evil. And in church, we often say things like, Love the sinner and hate the sin. I heard that growing up. The only problem with that is we also say things in church like this. Have you ever sinned? You're a sinner. But we don't hate you. We hate your sin. But because of your sin, we hate you. Like, it's a really uh, weird circle right there. But we love you, by the way. Like, it's, that's not what they walk away with. They walk away hearing, we hate you. We define people many times by their sins. We label them a sinner. And so how do we love people and detest sin without detesting them? Um, I think Pastor Benjamin Kremer is helpful here. He says, Christianity should sound like this. My beliefs compel me to continue growing in my love for other people. It should not sound like this. 
My beliefs give me the right to control the lives of other people. When our Christianity begins to look like vengeance, when it begins to look like animosity and hostility towards the world, rather than love, humility, and compassion, we, then we know that we are following someone other than Jesus. If we're following Jesus, we should be growing in love, humility, and compassion for the people around us. Our goal is not to change people's sinful behaviors. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to love people and teach people to live and love like Jesus. In John 16, 18, Jesus said, When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. It does not say, When Alex comes, he will convict the world of sin, or insert your name, you will convict the world of sin, or whoever, you know, gets on social media and rants about whatever sinful person they don't like. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Not you, not me. Our job is to share the good news of Jesus, to demonstrate the upside-down values of his kingdom. And Paul seems to guess that some people will try hating people um, in order to hate evil, so he explains how we should detest evil. Look at that next verse. Here's how he says to detest evil. He says, by clinging to what is good. You don't hate evil by hating people. You hate evil by clinging to what is good. Show a better way. Don't condemn their way. Then Paul encourages, encourages us and them to honor others above themselves, to be passionate, to serve and worship and pursue Jesus, to be joyful, patient, and faithful. And finally, he ends with a call to show hospitality. Hospitality was not just a side thing in the first church. Hospitality was the way that the early church evangelized the Roman Empire. Why did Christianity spread? Not because they were knocking on people's doors and saying, if you died today, would you go to hell? Would you go to heaven? That's not what they did. They did not go around handing out little flyers. Does anybody remember in the 90s, there were these flyers and it looked like a million dollars and you'd see it looked like a dollar bill fluttering on the street and you'd run over and you're like, money! And you're like, oh, it says Jesus loves you, pray this prayer on it. And you're like, like why did this people drop this? Anybody? Maybe that was just in the South thing. A few people, okay. Um, it was the most frustrating thing as a kid when you're like, somebody drop some money, I can buy a toy. And you're like, oh. It's a Jesus track, you know. Um, that is not how the Romans reached the empire, the Roman believers. It was by hospitality. They opened their homes and they opened their lives and they shared meals with people. And that's what spread the good news of Jesus. We consider hospitality at Horizon one of the spiritual disciplines of Jesus. And um, we emphasize it and encourage it. That's why we have community meals. And that's why we practice inviting our neighbors into our homes. Okay, so there were some challenges in this passage, but overall not too bad, right? In those verses, we won't struggle with most of those. Let's continue on. It gets a little bit harder. Verses 14 through 18. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, these are a lot harder, right? These aren't as easier as some of those other ones where we're like, those sound nice. If you feel yourself internally starting to make some excuses here, like, well, except in this situation or not when this happens, surely, you know, consider that maybe the upside down vision of Jesus's kingdom may not have transformed you as much as you hoped or you liked. I know when I read these, I began thinking, okay, 
but if this person does something, obviously that's a unique situation, so I can curse them for that. You know, like if you're trying to make excuses, maybe you're not as transformed as you'd like. You might be conforming to how culture defines winning more than you think. Jesus on the cross on some level might seem foolish to you. Now, there's an interesting word here, right? Persecution. There's a lot of cries of persecution in American Christianity, but many times what's really happening are they're complaining that people are not giving them preferential treatment for having Christian beliefs. There was a long time in America where you could get preferential treatment for having Christian beliefs, and that's going away. That is not what persecution is. The Greek word to persecute literally means to be hunted, to be hunted like a hunter hunts an animal. Remember Elmer Fudd? Like, in the old cartoon Looney Tunes, he would hunt this rabbit, Bugs Bunny, and he would never ever get him, and he would suffer all this terrible stuff, but he would never stop hunting him. I'm like, you know what, after the first time the rabbit dropped an anvil on my head, I'd be like, I'm done. I'm going to hunt something else. You know, I'm going to give up. I'm going to go home. But he just kept hunting Bugs Bunny no matter what. When we call minor inconveniences persecution, we mock the long history of people who have gone to the gallows for Jesus, or been burned alive for Jesus, or been beheaded for Jesus. We mock the tens of thousands of Christians who are killed every year for Jesus in the Middle East and Asia. But regardless of the level of persecution, this is how Paul says we should respond when it feels like someone is hunting us or hurting us. We should return blessing to those who persecute. We should bless those who hunt us. We shouldn't drop anvils on their heads. We should bless them. We should seek their good and their well-being. The upside-down reality of Jesus' kingdom and my sure place in communion with the Trinity means that I have nothing to lose by doing good to those who wish me harm. No one can take my eternal life and connection to God away. It means I can love people who are against me, who seek to hurt me, who seek to hinder me, because I am safe and secure in my relationship with a good God who gives generously and abundantly. The more we believe we are safe and secure in Jesus' coming kingdom, the less we will fight to retain our honor, our position, and our possessions in this crumbling kingdom today. The more that I have conformed to the idea that this present kingdom will last forever, the more I will fight and strive to maintain my honor, my position, my possessions here. Think about these next few verses. The next few verses, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil for evil. Do what's right in the eyes of everyone. As much as it's possible, live at peace with everyone. Think about how differently our culture would see Christianity if we all lived like this. If everyone who said they're a Christian lived like those three verses, think how differently they would view Christianity. Think about if everyone who posted on social media as a Christian posted with those three verses in mind, or everyone who's a Christian who spoke about politics followed those verses, or everyone who talked to their neighbors followed those verses, our churches would be filled with curious people wanting to know more about Jesus, instead of so often our society filled with people who are like, these Jesus people are crazy, look at these things that they're saying and doing the way that they're treating other people. Scott McKnight, in his book, A Church Called Tove, Tove is a Hebrew word for good, um, he said this, the church is part of the good news of Jesus, and the church proclaims the good news of Jesus. But when men and women have only seen churches formed by unhealthy power, 
unhealthy celebrity, competitiveness, secrecy, and self-protection, our corporate ecclesial life belies the truth of the gospel. Essentially, he says the way we do American church hurts the message of the gospel. The church can only witness to the truth of Jesus by seeking justice, serving with humility, operating transparently, and confessing and lamenting failures. We don't need to fight to protect the church's reputation. We don't need to sweep things under the rug to keep Jesus from looking bad. We need to humble ourselves. We need to admit when we've got it wrong. We need to listen instead of shouting. American Christianity has way too much shouting, not enough listening. We need to take a walk with someone on the opposite side or an opposite position of us instead of taking a stand. That's what made the good news of Jesus explode in Rome and spread throughout the empire. Okay, those verses were a little bit more challenging. You ready for the most challenging ones of all now? He's like, can it get worse? It can. Um, let's look at the final verses, 19 through 21. Paul says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, before you get too excited, like, oh, yes, yeah, so finally some verses. We get to burn the heads of our enemies, you know? That's not what it's saying. I, I know at first glance that's what it sounds like. Keeping burning coals on his head, though, is not shoveling fire onto the heads of your enemies. Um, this is a quote from Proverbs 25, verses 21 through 22. Paul was appealing to his Jewish brethren in the Roman house churches here by quoting the Old Testament. Um, there is documented records in Egypt of these rituals, and scholars believe throughout the ancient world there was this practice of doing these physical religious rituals or as a public ritual um, that would be a sign that something inside of you had changed. For instance, it could be spitting because you had said something that you regret, so you're spitting the words out of your mouth. And so they would go into a public place, and they would spit, and they'd say, those words that I had, I'm sorry that I said them, I'm spitting them out of my body. Now, they weren't stupid. They weren't like, that'll get rid of them. But it was a public way to express, I did something wrong, I'm publicly showing that I'm doing something different. In fact, there, were, um, there are recordings of people in the first century and earlier wrapping coals in their turban and then walking through the village to say, I'm burning out the thoughts that I had. I had bad thoughts. I had a bad way of thinking. Now I'm changing my way of thinking. I'm burning out my old thoughts. Now, before you say, well, that's weird, like we would never do anything like that. Anybody have a grandma who threatened to wash your mouth out with soap if you swore? No? My grandma was from Kentucky, so that's what she would threaten me. And she had lye soap. Lye soap's the worst stuff on the planet. That stuff's like acid, like it's terrible. But I, was, I learned very quickly to never ever say a swear word because my grandma would threaten to wash your mouth out with soap. Now, did that make the bad words go away? No, but I didn't say them anymore, you know? And so this was a public way of expressing that there was a change going on in your life. Um, and so that's what he's referencing here. He says, when you feed your enemy, when you give him something to drink, you are going to change the way that he thinks about you and about himself. And these rituals move the ideas from just your head into your hands. It's one thing to say, man, I had a wrong way of thinking, and I'm sorry for that. This was a public display to take it from just a thought into an action. And perhaps American Christianity has no bigger problem than this. P 
people who call themselves Christians, who have prayed a prayer or affirmed a statement of faith or have been baptized, have never actually become disciples of Jesus, students of how he lived and loved. They say they have believed what he said, but they've never transferred what he taught into the substance of their lives. It hasn't moved from their heads to their hands. And it's easy after four weeks of hearing about the upside-down kingdom messages of Jesus and his kingdom and how he thinks differently about winning and losing and strength and power. It's easy to think, yeah, yeah, I believe that. It's easy for me to stand up here and teach it and be like, man, I believe it. Obviously, I'm teaching it, right? I believe this thing. I get it. I believe it. Jesus is better than Zeus. Easy for me to say. But we really believe it when we practice it, when it affects how we live and how we love. When we sacrifice for our enemies like Jesus did when he went to the cross, rather than when we slaughter our enemies like Zeus does. Notice how Paul ends. Evil defeats us, he says, not when it harms us, but when we respond to evil with evil. He says you defeat evil with good. Evil wins when we assume Zeus is stronger than the suffering servant Jesus. Evil wins when we conform to the way the culture thinks about winning instead of being transformed by the way Jesus thinks about winning. Evil dies when we respond to evil with good. We dismantle the kingdom of darkness when we respond to the darkness with light. When we choose to take the lower place, when we choose to love an enemy, when we return the evil done towards us with good, when we do what is right, even when it is costly, it proves that we believe there is a very real and very soon coming kingdom when everything lost will be found and every sacrifice will be redeemed a hundredfold. When they took down the wall with a Alexamanos Graffitica, uh, was, they were cutting it down to put it in the Palatine Museum in Rome. They took down the neighboring wall and they saw that originally the wall ran longer in ancient Rome, and someone had carved another graffiti into the wall right next to this. And so this one was carved by a different hand, it had a different style, and it simply said this, Alex Menos remains faithful. Let us remain faithful when it looks ridiculous to follow Jesus, when it looks ridiculous to love our enemies, when we are ridiculed because it's ridiculous to look like a loser in order to win a spiritual battle. Let us, like Alex Menos 2,000 years ago, remain faithful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this challenge from the Apostle Paul. We know that the Roman church... Man, they had all kinds of issues, and they were fighting with each other, and they were worried about who was getting pres uh, prestige and power. But Lord, they also got things after they saw, read this letter. They got things worked out so much so that the entire Roman Empire was turned upside down. And that the empire's capital, Rome, actually became a center for Christianity for thousands of years. Because they put aside their desire to win, their desire to be strong and in charge, their desire to defeat their enemies. Instead, they said, we're going to model Jesus. We're going to associate with those of low reputation. We're going to welcome the outsider, the excluded. And we're going to lay down our lives for our enemies and offer them food when they're hungry, drink when they're thirsty, blessing when they persecute us. God, give us such a vision of your goodness and your coming kingdom.